when Andrew Shanahan decided to take his personal story and turn it into a work of fiction, the novel Before and After came into being. I was lucky enough to sit down with Andrew for episode number 84 of Storytelling with Seth, and the conversation that followed was one of those that always delights my ear when I get the chance to listen back through and put it together for an episode for you. Andrew did a wonderful job introducing the part of his personal story that is reflected in the novel, the elements he wanted to address, the great characters that made his novel so much fun to read, and also the potential for all of us to find the places where we draw hope from, recognize that men need to talk, and also keep in mind the fact that along with faith, there is always conflict and trials. But what they bring out of us, well, that is the meat of the story, and that is the part we get to sink our teeth into in this conversation. Join me now for a really great talk with Andrew Shanahan about before and after and so much more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. I'd like to thank you for joining me today and I'd like to thank my guest for joining me as well. He gave me the opportunity to give a read through on his novel and I believe you're going to really enjoy the conversation I'm about to have with Andrew. Andrew, how are you today, sir? I'm really good. Thanks, Seth. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you for your book. Can you tell me really quick uh, where you are, one, for anyone listening? And uh, secondly, I'm going to move into where you came up with the book and if perhaps where you are had anything to do with the beginning of that book. Okay, sure. Well, I'm going to answer your where you are question geographically rather than spiritually um, <laughs> your choice always yeah, always exactly, your choice yeah, dealer's choice and um, so i am geographically i am just south of manchester england the uk um and uh, from <laughs> if you want to get really precise i am in my bedroom so there you go little bit of inside information for you um in terms of where the book came from um so about 2014, um, I found myself incredibly fat, Seth. <laughs> it's the truth of it. So I, I had been working on a, um, a business that had taken all of my sort of time and I'd been working very long hours and I'd been, my diet had suffered as a result and I was probably drinking a bit too much beer uh, to try and speed relax in the evenings. And I'd, you know, I'd put on a lot of weight. And so around about 2014, I sold that business and suddenly found myself with free time and uh, realized that, you know, I wasn't happy with what I was doing with my weight. So really sort of looked around to see if I could find, um, you know, organizations who could help me lose that weight and just struggled, couldn't find anything that was suitable for men. So there was a lot of Weight Watchers. There was a lot of, uh, we have the Slimming World in the UK. And but they were very, very focused on 
women and uh, you know the sorts of thing of support that women needed. So there's a lot of group work, but then the groups were all women, um, and it just I struggled as a result. So I, um, as I lost the weight, just sort of through scrapping and um, you know doing it my way and and making lots of mistakes. I thought there should be some more support for men out there. So I uh, started an organisation called Man V Fat. And it was the idea was was to try and help other men like me out there who, who wanted to lose weight and and give them some support. And that sort of has gone on and is, is still um, in operation today. We've helped over four million men around the world to, to lose weight and to you know get uh, healthy and fit. And we do that through providing information through websites. There's a book. Uh, we run a lot of groups. We run an organize. We run a scheme called Man V Fat Football, which are football leagues, so soccer for for you guys, um, soccer leagues for men who are overweight and obese. And you know these are um, really supportive environments. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been really successful. And last year, uh, was, no, two years ago now. I've, I found that I, the business was just taking a lot of my time and I wasn't particularly, um, I didn't feel like I was being as effective as I wanted to be. And so I um, sort of stepped down from the business. I'm still a director of the business, but, um, you know, I stepped down from a day-to-day role and really wanted to go back to my first love. I'm a journalist by trade and really felt that I wanted to write something fictional because it was just a, a real break from the work that I'd been doing. And so I wrote my first book, Before and After, and the, it was built off the experiences both I'd had with my weight and you know my weight fluctuating through my life, and also from the, the sort of conversations that I'd had with so many different men um, when I was working on Man V Fat. And that, in a very long, big, very large nutshell, is, is where the idea came from. Well, it's a nutshell that contains quite a bit. So let's <laughs> yeah, keep so. that in mind as well. It's not like <laughs> that's an ordinary nutshell worth of information. That's quite a bit to consider there. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm curious if there was uh, something specific you were able to identify in addition to the need for support and I'm believing maybe the community that led to your success and also the desire to create a community where men could achieve uh, success with the support of other men and then, you know, turning it later into, uh, you know, sports programs as well to help support that, that goal. Um, yeah, I think so. I think some of the things that I really identified were that the existing forms of support out there were unsuitable for men for a variety of reasons. So, um, the the example I give the rather crude example but it's something that actually happened to me was that I joined Weight Watchers and was sat in the the group um and the the leader of the group was talking to a room you know of 99% female and they were talking about how your periods can cause fluctuations in your weight um and I was you know I was sat there and I was thinking you know this, this just isn't my problem. This is, isn't something that is affecting my weight. Um, and so I found that really, you know, there was, but then at the same time, there were a lot of things that I felt were more uh, tailored and more uh, problematic for men that weren't being covered, such as the fact that I was working for, you know, 13 hours a day. And, you know, for example, if I was on the road, 
Um, it was very, very hard to find healthy food at service stations on the motorway. And, you know, th- these were what I felt were predominantly male issues um, that were, were causing my, were at least partly responsible for mine and presumably other men's weight gain. And so that, that was a really big realisation that there were societal reasons why men's weight loss had different problems and different challenges to, to women. And but then there are also biological differences as well. So men carry a lot more muscle, for example, just by default, and therefore they tend to lose weight quite a lot quicker um, because they have a higher metabolism that sort of thing. And so there was, you know, there were specific challenges that I felt meant that a gendered approach to to weight loss was actually an appropriate one. Um, and then I think when we started it and when it became a community. We started with a crowdfunding campaign, which reached 102% of its target very quickly. Um, and it just struck me that there were, there were a lot of other men out there who were wanting this sort of support. And potentially, you know, one of the other things that was really a gendered issue is that women had this culture of talking about weight and weight loss. Um, perhaps because the, the diet industry had focused on them since the 1960s. And men really hadn't, and they hadn't, um, you know, they could, didn't have the language, they didn't have the vocabulary to talk about these things, and yet it was so obviously such a, a problem for, for so many of them. It's interesting that you bring that up because I'm reminded of the fact that I have heard it said on a few occasions that men need to talk, but rarely are they a encouraged to or b given an environment where they feel that it's safe to do so uh, i think yeah. addressing that is extremely valuable and I'm, I'm guessing one of the keys to uh, making connections with people with specifically with men who are uh, trying to make a change in their life their lifestyle their bodies yeah absolutely you know um and th- there was this preconception that men were difficult to talk to about these things and about emotional things and about mental health things because obviously mental health is so closely tied up with physical health and and you know in my view uh, it goes on that spiritual health is tied up with those things i don't think you can have if one of those things is out of balance then i th- i believe that the whole thing gets out of balance and and that's where uh, problems occur but you're absolutely right you know that there are there was this preconception really that men didn't want to talk about it but actually I think what it was was that they didn't often I think it was the fact that they weren't asked about how they felt about their weight and they weren't given those sorts of um, spaces and uh, times to to discuss those things and and certainly we found with the organization that once you had a group of guys and they felt that they were you know encouraged to talk and they were happy to talk my goodness you couldn't get them to shut up they were they were really really keen to talk and talk in the most graphic terms and to talk in the most explicit heartfelt ways about how they felt and about their you know their mental health as well and I think that that was really surprising um although perhaps it shouldn't have been for me because I knew from from myself that I did want to talk about these things I did want to um get healthier and I did want to express the frustrations that I felt and really you know a lot of these sorts of feelings and a lot of these um 
those emotions came out in the character in Before and After Ben. Um, so he is £601. He's uh, been a shut-in for nine years. And so I wanted to write a book about weight and about how debilitating it was. And I think that my way of, of bringing that up as a topic was to put it into this apocalyptic scenario where I could sort of express some of these desperations and the frustrations that men had openly expressed to me. I completely agree. And I have to give some kudos, my friend. That is a lovely transition right into what I was building towards. So clearly <laughs> your journalistic skills will be uh, playing a role in this conversation because you were guiding us toward a lovely intro and your storytelling is uh, also on on par, if not excelling today, because that, that's a lovely setup, because what, what I wanted to lead into and which you've done so well for me is to introduce that, yes, the uh, main character of the story is 601 pounds. And when the story begins, he is preparing for uh, a procedure that is the consequence of his weight and the complications that come with it. And then right at this moment where he's going to get some help, something terrible occurs. And not only is he not able to get that help, he uh, soon becomes more isolated than he was even as a shut-in, if that's possible. And then has to manage um, the complications of his weight and potentially trying to solve um, the issues they present with him maybe staying alive and protecting a loved one. Uh, that's quite an interesting, you know, beginning for him. And yet I, I love that also it, it sets us up for this period of isolation, which is one of those things that I can imagine most men feel when they are overweight or having uh, difficulty controlling their weight or any part of their lives. And if you can't talk with others about it, you must mm. feel terribly alone. Ben actually gives us a physical presentation of that. And we set up there. Uh, any elaboration you would like to provide for any of those things that I just <laughs> described for how our story begins and maybe why you chose to set it up that way or uh, if there was um, maybe an intention for presenting our character in this predicament to start things off? Yeah, I think the, the thing that I'd elaborate on, uh, I mean, first of all, just to, as a point of order that from... Um, the book was written in 2019, so very much in pre-COVID times. But the, the the book came out in January 2020, and as you say, it, it is you could boil the story down and say that it's about someone who is stuck inside while a pandemic rages outside. And clearly, I had no idea in 2019 just how opposite that would be in 2020 and 2021, and. That that was a very strange experience to to have written a book that was partially prophetic about uh, some of the experiences that we all had. But I think the thing that I'd like to elaborate on is that what I think the, the pandemic has shown us is that we all believe that there are these um, the concrete situations around us in life, whether that is a concrete belief, uh, concrete organisations concrete situ you know situations where these things are immutable won't change and um, we've done this the same way for a million years i felt like this forever and 
what I thought was really interesting about this sort of apocalyptic event, which t- is, takes the form of a pandemic that, that rages outside Ben's uh, window, literally, um, was how quickly those things that we consider to be immutable can change. And for, I think for all of us, that has proven to be extremely scary because we take comfort from the fact that there are these these points that we we believe are not going to change but also ultimately i believe they can be liberating because they force us to reassess those fundamentals and to to renegotiate them in a way that perhaps is more appropriate for the time that we're in and certainly from ben's point of view in the book you know, he, he has built up this very concrete belief about himself and about his limitations and about, you know, he, he has a strong um, disgust for himself, which is embedded and, and expressed through his eating. And that, I believe, is something that, you know, it's that expression of horror. And, and for me, that's the most horrific part of the book. Um, you know, th- there are several points of, of fairly graphic horror and um but for me it's the it's the compulsion that ben feels that i i've always felt was the most horrific thing and but what this um you know situation this apocalyptic event gives him is an opportunity to revisit those beliefs and reassess them and see how they serve him and for me i think that that you know i, I always want to be a writer of hope I, I want to express the hope that I feel. <laughs> Seth, you've, you've said yourself that <laughs> you, we are, we're both uh, perhaps um, criticised in jest, I'm sure, at, at points about our um, our hope and our optimism. And, you know, that's fine. I would rather be criticised for, for being full of hope um, because that's the sort of thing that I feel I want to express, that there is always hope and that there is always ch- uh, a chance to change. And so that that really is kind of the one of the the interesting parts of the book, I believe. I completely agree. And yes, I, I am a, a partner in hope, a equal champion, <laughs> a uh, supporter, a flag waving uh, optimist. I, <laughs> oh man, brother! <laughs> yeah, I can actually remember distinctively when I. You know, my sister was relaying a conversation her and my mother had. And I was a college student and you know, always finding interesting living situations in order to continue going to school at a cheap price and keep the cost down. And I think uh, I think it was one of them says to the other, and I'm never quite sure who says what. The conversation apparently goes something on the lines of, so what did you think? How's he doing? Well, he says everything's great. Well, yeah, but Seth's an optimist. He always thinks everything's great. <laughs> And I had to chuckle at that when I think to myself, wow, here I am at like 1920. And apparently I've already established this, this part of me that others will use to identify. Well, he always looks on the bright side. You know that guy. Um, right. and, and gradually we, we get the chance to, to use that to our advantage. So a lovely thing is that you're also introducing something that I wanted to talk about, which is a changing uh, understanding of perspective for Ben and for mm. the reader. Because while we introduce him at this very challenging time, and I'm, I'm gonna you know, allude to the fact that in the, I'm not giving away any spoilers, folks. In the first chapter, we learn that Ben is going to 
get his leg removed because he is suffering from uh, diabetes and the complications have led to uh, a medical issue. And yet something had to lead to this point where he is. Things never start uh, where we find them. There's always a history involved. And as part of your storytelling from chapter to chapter, we move around in time a bit, which is always, I think, uh, an interesting moment and shows to the reader how well the writer understands the, the character, their history, and what important elements they want to portray. So I'd, I'd love to move now just into where we introduce and how we move through Ben's timeline from uh, just a few months in difference to many years, and also how we are able to see where his weight is from where we're introduced to him to the time period that the chapter happens to be addressing. Was that a, a choice that developed organically or, or something that you saw early on as, as part of a structure and organization for you? Um, I would love to say that it was a, a carefully crafted structural decision. <laughs> the brilliance, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I had it all figured out right from the get-go, buddy. <laughs> That's smart. Um, but in truth, um, like so many things that um, are attached to my writing, it was initially based off a terrible pun, really, or sort of developed from a pun, which is the fact that anyone who has been involved in the weight loss industry or weight loss stories or writing about weight loss will know that one of the, the fundamentals of a weight loss story is the before and after pictures. So it's it sort of, I, I was thinking about before and after um, pictures for Ben and just kind of the development that he goes through and, and seeing that there are two sides to this story, that there are the before pictures that were terrible and show every walk, bump, scrape, awfulness, and the after pictures where the work has been put in and the development and the change. And I sort of thought the best way of expressing that is, is by starting to talk about, you know, taking that literally, what, what happened before and what happens after. Um, and so I decided to, to make that conscious split so that um, chapter by chapter. And I think also as well, I think it was a, a sort of a subconscious understanding maybe or a suspicion that readers wouldn't necessarily pick up a book to read about uh, a fictionalised character's weight gain and that it had to have some subsequent meaning so that there had to be a relevance to that in the, the after part of the story. And so it, it was really then just looking at, well, you know, picking these points before um, this apocalyptic event happens where I could talk about some of the things that had shaped Ben's character and, and shaped him physically. Um, and it, as you say, lead up to this point where the where the story starts, where he is, um, you know, at a point of massive change and crisis, which unfortunately coincides with the world being at a point of massive change and crisis. And so, yeah, there, there was it started with that before and after. Oh, that's quite funny, you know. Um, and then thinking, oh yeah, okay, well we could look at that from a so the the before chapters are written. Um, past tense third person and the after chapters are present tense first person just to sort of shift gears really between and give it a bit more immediacy and I, I always quite like I know that first person is deeply uncool and uh, people tend to you know, <laughs> uh, sort of see them as quite naive I think but I, I, I quite like the immediacy of it I quite like the 
you know, being in the character's head. Um, and especially when that's balanced with other viewpoints as well. I must admit, it, it made a total rod for my own back because I was forever wondering which tense thing should be in and, and <laughs> which which bits we could, uh, whose, whose perspective I was supposed to be writing from. But um, fortunately, I had a good editor and she managed to pick out most of the, the rubbish that I put in there. I can distinctly remember on a few occasions being in a writer's workshop and feeling that, you know, I'm working at a point on a novel I was working on. And then someone would invariably say, you know, I'm curious about the idea of changing this in the tense. And I think to myself, <laughs> why? Why do yeah. you want to do this to me? Did I, did I hurt your small favorite pet? Did I call you names behind your back? It's, you know, that it, it, you create such a war within yourself already about which the tense is you want to tell. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> making that choice and then I, I think it's really smart though that you were able to you know break it up at some point like looking for uh, a thread for these past chapters and a thread for the present you know making that choice of uh, past tense as well as uh, then shifting into uh, first person perspective and as far as the cool thing I'm just going to remember my almost famous and Philip Seymour Hoffman which was the yeah. cool is the drug, man, that they try and, you know, use to get us on board. But as I always understood it, you and I will never be cool, or at least that's what he was saying to me. Uh, <laughs> so I always accepted that pretty early on. Like, you know what? Yeah. Uncool is just where I fall into, man. So you know what? You, yeah. you chose first person. And if it's deeply uncool, let me be uncool with you. <laughs> And, and let's have good. some fun with that. <laughs> yeah, I think you, know, you have to, I'm sure, you know, you, you tell these stories really well through the, through the podcast and the interviews that you do, but that, you know, storytelling has that, it, it's the bit that I feel weakest of, if I'm truthful, of, you know, I love the idea of coming up with the nuts and bolts and the the plot and the characters of a story. Um my, my personal feeling is that my, my weakness lies in the sort of the stylistic execution of those. I feel confident, you know, and happy writing. But equally, I feel that that is the, that's the bit that I think other writers, you know, the, the fancy writers, the literary writers, you know, really get. And, um, and they, they really exploit it beautifully. Um, but that's fine. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 43. I'm I'm comfortable with with who I am, and where I am, and I, I'm you know I'm happy if that is um, is my weakness. That's fine. Um, at least I feel like I'm telling, hopefully, a relatively compelling story with someone who readers care about. And I think that in the vast majority of cases, if I'm personally reading a book um, with an interesting story and an interesting character, I, I'm going to forgive. A writer for for not having the best stylistic uh, execution I think well if that's your weakness then my weakness is not picking up on that because I didn't feel <laughs> that there was a poorness in uh, your execution I, I really enjoyed what you developed I Thanks. I my pleasure your the development of the story seemed to be in tune with your voice and so for all of those reasons it felt very natural it felt uh, very much a part of the character's thinking. And for all those reasons, it, to me at least, it felt very seamless. So if you've had criticisms to the different, well, you know, you're, 
they're welcome to say what they're going to say. I'm comfortable saying what I just said. And uh, there's always a choice of who you want to listen to and when you want to listen to them. So oh, you're tired of hearing. I'm, I'm sure, as with many of your your interviewees, you know the the loudest voice of criticism is always the internal one. Um, always. And you know, <laughs> and I'm going through the process of writing a, a first draft at the moment, and so I'm dealing with the daily roller coaster of thinking. You know, this is this is good. This is good. I, I I can see merit in this. And then almost simultaneously within the next second, saying this is the biggest pile of hot garbage out there. Um, I, I am a true discredit to my profession and to my species. Yeah, that's a conversation I have on a regular basis. I'm pitching a novel right now and I'm working on a, a project that I feel could be a novel. It could also be uh, something dealing with like a comic script. So I'm, I'm having fun with two. But there's also this part of me that's always like, you don't know what you're doing. You can't write a comic script. You haven't even gotten that other novel pitched this soul. What's wrong with you? You're going to write another book? Like, yeah, I always got to deal with that guy. And uh, luckily, I, I've had this one thing, and it always works well for me. I, I don't know when it started. It was a few years ago. But there was a moment where I found myself saying, hey, are you happy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Okay. Quit dwelling in places when you're unhappy and quit thinking about times when you were unhappy. That's it. And I was like, hey, hey, you. <laughs> Yeah. Gonna use that you know uh but it pops yeah. in every once in a while and and sometimes it works and other times you know i i go and do something else because the voice is just really annoying and i just yeah. need a minute you know to collect but uh mm. i agree with you man i think any any writer out there anyone listening mm. who's picked up a pen and tried to put something down knows that challenge of that voice that's saying who do you think you are you know yeah what, what gives you the right and yeah. uh, you got to have a little audacity. You got to have a little bit of, you know, I, I, I'm doing this right or wrong. Yeah, I'm going to do and this. I think, I think the other side of it as well, and the thing that I'm, so, I mean, two things on that. One is the greatest piece of writing advice I've ever been given is the the quote, don't get it right, get it written. Um, you know, especially in that first draft phase, it's not about getting it right, it's about getting it written. And that, that is a fundamental, true, abiding law of writing that you know you just need to get it down on page first before you can do anything with it and the the other thing on that is that you know when that discomfort and that that sort of critical voice i think it's to to stop seeing that voice as the enemy and as something that is um trying to derail you because i, I think i know what that voice is and i think it's that your brain and your mind your writer's mind is trying to say look at this from different angles look at this from a negative angle look at this from you know someone who hates the genre of books that you're writing look at this from um the other the, the villain's point of view look at this from upside down you know and look at it that i think is the the process that writers need to go through is they need to see this book and this work and this string of words from as many different viewpoints as they possibly can and in many ways, that's a real, you know, so that, that those voices, those critical voices are really just other voices saying, look at this from a different perspective and try and hear that as a positive thing. It's your it's those voices saying maybe there's another viewpoint on this. And if you, you could hear and understand that viewpoint, 
it would deepen and improve the work that you're trying to do. I agree. I, I do know that, you know, the, the critics there, it's going to be asking questions. It's going to be raising points. Um, and it can be a conflict or it can be a conversation, you know, one in which you listen to what it has to say and you take what's worth keeping and filter the rest and move on from that point. You know, you can, you can often listen without having to stop what you're doing or, mm. <laughs> you know, give up completely. So I think that's uh, extremely helpful. And I think it's also a great thing to keep in mind that sometimes we have support in that way, which is something that you pointed out, um, Man versus Fat has been able to do. And also in this book, Ben had at least his mother, who is a great character, I believe always providing that support for him for mm. so often. She was that one who was saying, well, let's look at this from another way. Let's see what our options are. Let's, let's try and do something that works for us instead of trying to do what works for other people. And I think that's really uh, a helpful comparison to keep in mind because uh, so often it might feel like there are things that we don't want to hear or that, you know, sometimes people want to give us support when all we want to do is say, you know what, um, I I'm, I'm good just not doing anything. Do you mind if I just not? do anything. And you, you have a great example here for uh, Ben of someone who is instrumental in trying to give him uh, all the support she could from taking him out of school to then building this really interesting structure for education. I, I love this character. And I think she's one of a few who uh, Ben is able to recall during this time when he's isolated and has a chance to have a lot of reflection. Yeah, and I think, you know, she is a, a testament to a mother's love in many ways. She, and that sort of, that really pure, uncomplicated love that a parent can, you know, it, it's it's hardwired into a parent. And just that sort of, um, and I think people who are in the throes of addiction, which is what I would argue is, is what Ben suffers from, you know, he suffers from compulsive eating and, and from, um, you know, I think this is, I'm no psychologist, but it feels very much like a depressive anxiety disorder that he treats himself through, you know, uh, agoraphobia and biscuits, essentially. And I think that, you know, for people who have experienced someone in real pain um, in their lives, I think that Ben's mom is that sort of, that one end of the spectrum where it's just all accepting all love forever and i i think that it's difficult because obviously that can come across as a very simple character but also it's, it's what i've seen in my life as well of of you know uh, not just being on the receiving end of that love but also seeing in other families and other relationships where someone who is in pain is offered that just unconditional love and it's you know it's a really beautiful thing and it's obviously so hard for that person giving that unconditional love because they see that their, their person in pain and I think that that is that must be so difficult but it's also you know real bravery that they can continue to love and continue to express that even when as you say that that person might be pushing them away um, and I think she's a, a really good template for, 
for how that love can be delivered. Um, and you know, the, the the book as a whole, as we've we've spoken about before, you know, it is is about those sources of hope. And I didn't want to be overly didactic about kind of where I draw my hope from. But what I wanted to do was just sort of outline a number of ways that that hope exists and that people pull hope from. Um, because, you know, for, for me at the moment, this is the most important message that, that I can be writing about is, is about hope and it's about um, how there is hope out there and how people need to be encouraged. Um, because clearly the, there are there are bleak things in our world. And I, I, I want people to see you know, the hope of music and the hope of um, friendship and the hope of pets and the hope of faith. Um, and, you know, where, regardless of where they draw their own hope from, just to see that, that there is, it is there in abundance um, if we are not blinded to it. I agree. I, I feel that something that you've really pointed to is how important it is for anyone who's witnessed or experienced that love and whether it's in the role of the child, the role of the parent, or as someone watching that love displayed through a family is also the fact that it creates a foundation for what we think love is or how we interpret it, which is what we then go out into the world in many cases searching for is the next evolution of that, a partner, mm -hmm. someone to share that love with. And you offer the possibility of that to Ben at a point in the story where we learn about Helen and mm. a sense of promise that becomes very important uh, in later chapters and even the ending of the story, which I shall not give away. I have read <laughs> the book. I have loved every moment. I know exactly what I'm alluding to. And yet you'll have to read it to discover the where, the how, and the why. But Helen is uh, another great example of something to offer hope, promise. Someone who sees Ben for far more than he sees himself. And I loved her, uh, her role in this story. Can you talk a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad you liked it because I, I really enjoyed writing her as a character. And um, I certainly feel that um, I, I wanted her to be someone who is in the middle of her own journey because I think too often in books, supporting characters are, are really just peripheral and they they are there to move along the main character's story and it, it that's not life and i think it sets up this bad um expectation that we have that you know we are all the main protagonists of our own stories and everyone else is just you know bumbling along waiting for us to move on to the next chapter of our own lives rather than it being individual main protagonists in their own lives and um so what with Helen, my, my main thing was, was that, you know, she, they developed this slightly odd um, love affair because obviously he is um, shot in. He, he doesn't leave the house and hasn't done for nine years at the point when, when he first meets her on Tinder. And, you know, that, that really then becomes, so it's um, a, a platonic love that they share. And, Ben is un, unsure about how to negotiate relationships because he, and fundamentally, it, it, it highlights his inability to to love himself because he, he is incapable of 
seeing someone else's love for him and accepting that as real or valid. And, you know, that's um, bittersweet and it's sad. And I, so as a writer, obviously, that's something that I think, oh, great, that's, you know, it's a, that's a nice thing to write about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, I think with, with in Helen's case, though, it's the fact that she she has her own desires, which take her out of the story. And for me, that that is the I liked that um, because it felt like she she was actually um, marginally more three dimensional because of that. I agree. In fact, I love the fact that she appears for the time that she does and then is gone and she's going with a purpose. She Mm. wants to discover. She wants to see. And she also wants to present that possibility to Ben to Mm. offer to him what that consideration should be for him as well. She knows what his position is. She's quite shrewd in arranging for their first uh, physical one-on-one interaction. Mm. And she's also shrewd enough to know that this isn't something that she is going to be able to uh, solve. It's something she might be able to play a role in. And Mm. if it's based on their relationship, attraction to each other and hope and potential for what that could lead to for each other, she's going to keep moving forward with her life, but she's also going to plant a seed and in the process, give it the opportunity to maybe turn into something else, maybe not. I feel that there's a suggestion at some point uh, that, that Ben makes a decision about that. And I'll let readers discover that for themselves. But I love the fact that she's going somewhere and that in doing so, she provides not only an opportunity for Ben, but she's also a moving target. She's a reminder, like you said, that in the real world, there are people who come into our lives. We have these sparks that can fly and circumstance, environment, situation can change all of that in a minute. And Sometimes you choose to go. Sometimes you choose to stay. The, the course of your life is, is often determined by those many different decisions. And we see that this decision is something that has, it's, it's an opportunity that hasn't closed for Ben. And so it's something for him to you know, keep in mind as the story progresses. Um, but I also like the fact that while she leaves, while she moves in a direction, and uh, as do many of the characters, there is one constant in Ben's life throughout this story. And I'm a uh, proud papa of two dogs. I have a Pippa <laughs> and a French bulldog named Bruno. And the connection that you describe between Ben and a little one named Brown is one of the cruxes that just made me turn page after page, knowing that in many ways, these two were working to keep each other alive, to take care of each other when it was really just the two of them through so much of what's going on. Tell uh, a little bit, if you would, about Brown, um, her part in the story, if she uh, was the uh, part of the origin in the early stages or if she developed at some point. But uh, for the most part, in your own words, tell us about Brown. Yeah, she's... um... (laughs) I really love Brown um, as a character. How can you not? Um, and I think, you know, going back to what I was saying about that, that sort of, um, she mixes that, that's kind of, um, 
indefatigable love that Ben's mum has for Ben and the kind of the the independence and she has her own uh, needs within the story um, like Helen does and I think that that's why she, she's an interesting character because she's not just a sort of uh, a canine sidekick who just does whatever the, the hero does. She she um, is a, a major plot point in the story because he has to care for his dog and unfortunately because he's a shot in he's been effectively practicing for being holed up in his, his flat for, for nine years so he has the there is a logic to the, the slightly strange um, solutions that he's come up with but for, for me again you know it, it goes back to to hope and as you know as a, a dog father yourself um you you'll know that animals kind of and, and um I think dogs especially, I think they bring out the best in humans because they expect that they look at you with such expectation of love that how can you not lift yourself a little bit? Um, because otherwise you're disappointing um, this creature. You know, it's um, it's a really primal thing. And, and certainly that relationship between man and dog is is very special, I believe. Actually, interestingly, before... And while I was writing the book, um, I've never had a dog before. And um, oh. and it was while we were writing this that, um, so I did quite a lot of research about the particular breed that, that Ben has, which is a breed called a Manchester Terrier. And um, did some, uh, quite a lot of interviews and went out on dog walks with um, a wonderful woman called Anne and her husband Chris and their three Manchester Terrier dogs and got to know them quite well. And as it happens, uh, I didn't know, but Anne was putting one of her dogs in for breeding. And so about uh, five months ago, she emailed and said, right, our dog is uh, now having a litter. Um, do you want one? And so we now have a dog. We, we now have our very own brown. We have a, a little Manchester Terrier called Quinn. Who's, uh, you can probably hear barking at various points during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite all right. You can hear my French bulldog at times snoring in the background, just breathing. Um, I should have to be honest. I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're quite. I mean, they they. That's a great story. I, I love the fact that uh, through the writing of this and the interviews, you you end up with your own. <laughs> no, it's it's really quite sort of it's a it's a book that has um, generated things in the real world on one scale of the one end of the scale. You know, it accidentally brought forth uh, a pandemic. So apologies for everyone for that. And on the other end of the scale, it, it got me a dog. So, you know, pros and cons. <laughs> there are a few trade-offs I, I, I will consider. I don't hold you solely responsible for the pandemic. But, you know, uh, on the plus side, you got a dog. I mean, yeah. you, know, you got a yeah. friend for life. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Or someone will bite my fingers. <laughs> I think you really pointed to something great too with the idea of the primal relationship, the uh, the way that dogs bring out the best in us, that they they want so little of us and they are so pleased by the love that we you know share, that we give mm -hmm. simply through the act of uh, spending time with them, feeding them, walking them, you know, 
yeah. companionship, the the pack uh, sort of mentality, the idea of it's you and me and whoever's part of our group, and and we know this about ourselves. We have that sure. uh, awareness and uh, sense of comfort, confidence that comes with it. I, I love how Brown uh, brings out the best in Ben. I believe motivates him to um, look out for more than just himself and actually take some really interesting risks as far as how do we keep Brown fed when I'll simply mention this now. And if we have time, we can talk more about it, but there's an apocalypse that has turned people into things that are not quite human anymore, quite predatory, quite resilient, um, quite demented perhaps or violent and because of that environment it's hard for Ben to go outside he has a limited amount of food left to sustain he and uh, and Brown and and while he has the option of feeding off of his own body because he has so much mass that he can live off of Brown doesn't have that option and we get into a really interesting um, sort of heightened stakes and tension when he has to send Brown out into the world via a drone, which really mm. brought together a lot of fun for me. And, and I love this idea. I, knowing now that you've only had a dog for a few months, I, I can mm. eliminate the question of, was this something that you applied practically on your own? <laughs> or was it something that you simply researched? So now I know that it seems like there was some research done, but I was, I was curious, uh, how this developed in the story and, and also this idea of, of using it to sort of keep the reader's attention to the fact that there's, there's still this sense of danger all around. We, we have these wonderful moments. We can go inside with Ben. We can stay inside the place for a while. We can you know, deal with the things that are going on inside the person and the history. But when it comes to others, when it comes to taking care of Brown, there are things that need to be done, choices that are made, and a series of adventures that it feels like they become riskier and riskier as time moves on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, again, you know, the fact that, that Brown is in this situation with Ben and the fact that he is, she is um, fundamentally one of the, the things that he will contemplate changing his, his very hard set beliefs for um really is the, the the sort of the driver the catalyst of the story um because without that you know as you say ben can survive for a long time um just sheerly through the the kind of the metabolism of his existing body fat but brown doesn't have that luxury and because he's been trapped within this flat for so long that's why he's come up with the, these sort of innovations of uh, using the drone to fly her out to a walking field, which he has bought and had secured and, and is sort of controlled by him. And I think, you know, that, that element, that's part of the psychology of wanting to, that, that really granular level of control is something that you certainly do see in, you know, I've interviewed a lot of shirtings um, and, that is something that is quite typical because they feel that they have the, the little that they have in their world. So, you know, the, their four walls are, is their world. The little that they have control of, they, they want to have absolute control of because, you know, they don't have control of anything else. And also internally, um, they feel like they're out of control themselves. 
And so that that was really, uh, again, quite interesting to write. It's one of those sort of plot points that you really you dwell on and you you think, how ludicrous is this? And if it is really ludicrous, is it ludicrous in the right way? You know, would the character have, have reached, you know, it's fine to have something ludicrous in the book, um, as long as it's not just a thrown away, you know, a thrown in piece of ludicrousness. Oh, and suddenly, you know, uh, laser guns exist and they start firing laser guns at each other. Um, if it's a piece of ludicrousness that develops out of the characters, I often think they're the best things because you can sort of, you end up in these remarkable situations. So in Ben's case, where he secures a pet carrier to a, a sort of industrial drone, which he has, um, and he uses that to transport her because he's shut in. And how would he walk her otherwise? And how would he, you know, give her exercise and the exercise? So he's drawn by this, this sort of, he's caught by wanting to give her the best of things. Um, as in, you know, he doesn't want just want her out on the balcony of the flat um, for her exercise and, and, you know, being miserable within the four walls with him. And I think as well, it's sort of it's indicative of the fact that he doesn't want to inflict his condition on someone else. And I think that's what. Um, so the dog is a gift from Ben's mum as she's dying. And that, I think, is the sort of the continuation. It's, it's sort of the lineage of her love being passed on through through this dog. And it's that that sense of, you know, this is something that Ben would change for. And this is something that that Ben will try and be a better person for. And and that's, you know, that's a nice story to, to read, I believe, because, you know, again, um, not to bang on about hope again, but it's, it's this sort of feeling about um, people do draw hope and um, love and uh, resonance from pets and from their, their relationship that they have with their pets. And, you know, I know that I've done that in the past with, with pets that I've owned. And really, it's, you know, I think that that's a, a fair reflection of how pets can make us a better person, try and be a better person for. And, and that's, you know, that's a nice story to, to read, I believe, because, you know, again, um, not to bang on about hope again, but it's, it's this sort of feeling about um, people do draw hope and um, love and uh, resonance from pets and from their, their relationship that they have with their pets. And, you know, I know that I've done that in the past with, with pets that I've owned. And really, it's, you know, I think that that's a, a fair reflection of how pets can make us a better person. I agree. We, we, we've heard the stories all our lives. I've experienced it personally. You're experiencing it now with your dog and we get to experience it through the character of Ben as this expression of love is also part of a process that slowly begins moving him towards the outside world. And at some point he re reaches a, a decision where um, there's either going to be a tragic loss or he will have to leave the confines that have been his home for so long. And I feel that this was an uh, important part of that progression that gradually through the extension of love, the, the desire to um, keep alive this expression of love that was given to him as a gift by his mom. And that now is an extension of companionship that he has created and, and one that he cares for deeply 
is now part of this uh, desire to do whatever is necessary. And it begins with a drone, but it brings him to his doorstep. It brings him to his balcony edge. It, it makes him consider going further. And we actually get to see what the uh, result of his choice is. And from that, we have a new direction eventually for the for the story to take. So I, I thought it was a, a wonderful, uh, almost like a, a, a fishing lure technique. You drop the bait in the water, <laughs> you start pulling it a little bit, you start pulling it a little bit. And it was it was the, the need to provide, the need to care for someone else, the, the need to keep that hope that you described. And hey, if you wanna bang on, I'm happy to do it too. So you know what? <laughs> let's let's keep the hope alive let's keep the the theme current and consistent um, I, I think it's a it's an element that's worth bringing up because I feel that it's a thread that is important throughout the entire story it's expressed in many ways through the characters we've already talked about through Brown it's even expressed through a character who shows up briefly but is a symbol for many of hope and that's in the example of Father Donald the last character I'd like to bring up today just a quick note on his brief appearance, what that um, you know, appearance means, especially uh, as part of a, a process for Ben to understand uh, events that are occurring in his life to get a, a sense of perspective that's different from any other that we've read so far in the book. And for the fact that um, like Helen, they both are for, they both show up briefly, they make important impacts. Um, and they are also these sort of resonances that remind us of the things that were so important in his life, especially um, because they originally came from his experiences with his mother, which is something Father Don yeah. talks about. And, and I think that the, the sort of the subject of faith and the subject of religion, um, as I say, for me, it's important that I'm not too didactic in, in how what I believe my sources of hope are, because I think that's to some extent irrelevant. It, it's more about me saying that there are these sort of different sources of hope. And for me, the, the religion appears in two ways. There's the sort of Anne, Ben's mum, her beliefs are, are much more rigid and set. And she, she takes real sort of um, comfort from her faith. And, I think Ben is a Christian in the same way that I'm a Christian in the sense that he has these beliefs, but he has so many questions around his beliefs and there is so much uncertainty. And I think that there are, I really like that sort of, that form of, of Christian writing because I feel like it, um, I think it's, it's just a bit more real world for me. You know, I, sometimes when you, I don't you sort of you hear a praise song or a worship song and they seem so sure and they seem so happy and you sort of it's, it can sometimes be difficult to um fit that emotion and that sort of surety to your own experience and certainly you know your own experience or you know I'm talking personally here from from my own experience with with faith and I think that Ben's negotiation um around these questions i feel like is important writing for because it's the sort of thing that i like to read about so you know i'm a, a very very big fan of uh, stuff john stevens and uh, the musician and i feel like he does this beautifully in his lyrics where he writes about his faith and 
it's not always positive. Sometimes it's a negative and sometimes it's it's bewildering to him and sometimes it's intoxicating. And I feel like that's really, really um, a powerful thing to say because I think that it's it's true for so many people. And I think that sometimes the the sort of the faith that Anne has is wonderful, but I think sometimes it really scares people and it, I think it puts them off faith in many ways because it leaves no room for doubt and humans are, are creatures of doubt you know we are, are built to, to doubt and to fear and to um, but equally you know we have this this route through in, in all these different forms of hope so for me Father Donald was is a, a conduit he's someone who brings religious issues into the book and raises those those discussions um but i think you know again it i would be disappointed in myself if i was writing a book that said you know fundamentally this is the right way of thinking and fundamentally um you know <laughs> there should be no doubt and fundamentally there is only joy because i don't feel that that's the human experience and I would imagine it's even more important to keep in mind when Ben's experiencing this time, when doubt and uncertainty are the one constant he actually sort of experiences on a day-to-day -day basis, which uh, for any other writer or artist out there, that's generally been my experience. Doubt and uncertainty are just part and parcel with the decision to work in a craft in which you're always defined by the last thing you heard or thought which can be positive yeah. or negative it can be as easily influenced by a song or the weather or or other things you're you're simply uh <laughs> that attuned or you know that conscientious mm. of the fact that it, it shifts so quickly and that mm. the certainty that others are able to display when it comes to beliefs whether it's for or against faith um uh, that's a certainty that I've always admired because it, it seems, as you said, so determined and resolute and mm. uh, presenting that question and offering the challenge, uh, I think is really important to the story. And I think it also points to how often ideas behind what we believe in are great when things are easy and comfortable. <laughs> ideas about what we believe in when things are really hard, it, it changes drastically. I was... Mm. Uh, I had a writing professor, really great guy, and we would take some walks because he lived nearby. Uh, there's a lake where I live near called Lake Merritt. And I remember yes. at the time his father was dying of cancer and mm. had lost the ability to speak. And up until that point had maintained a very upbeat attitude. But once he lost the ability to speak, his manner had changed everything about his demeanor. And this professor is talking with me and he's saying, I know that I have a concept about what happens when he leaves this earth, but I also know I can't give that concrete assuredness to him because none of us knows what happens next. So I want to mm. offer him a sense of, you know, comfort or assurance about something, but I don't know enough to give that. I don't have that authority. And when we face those moments, what do we think about faith? What do we do about it? What is our perception? Mm. I, I think it's really important that you brought that into the conversation because in many ways, Ben is facing uh, a slow burning but life and death situation at some point mm. not only for him but for brown and all sorts of questions are going to come into the mind of a character experiencing that you address many of them so well and i i'm grateful that i got a chance to talk with you about not only this story 
uh, but the characters you've included from our main to all of the supporting. And I also want to keep in mind the fact that I do a pretty good job when it comes to asking questions, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to miss something. So I'm curious <laughs> if at the end of all of this, if you find that I have done what many others might have done, which is to miss the question you would love to be asked. If there is something that you're like, you know what, it's a question I never get asked and I'd love to answer because I'm always ready or I think it's a topic that eventually is going to come up and I'm just waiting for someone to pick up on it. If I happen to miss one of those and there's something that you feel is vital that we should include or, or simply know it's something that I didn't ask and it would be great to include as part of our conversation. I always like to give that opportunity at the end. Feel like it, that's it, a good that's a good <laughs> get out question Seth <laughs> I have moments um, my friend <laughs> my the the only uh, one character that you didn't touch on which who I think is an interesting um and and has some sort of depth to it is is Carl who is the kind of the uh, <laughs> as, as you, you mentioned earlier on in the um the conversation that the rats, as they're called, are kind of the, the zombies of the book, if you like. They are the, this um, personifications of, of anger, essentially. And um, and the, the thing that I have mentioned a couple of times um, is that the they were inspired. That I'm not going to give. I'm not going to go into it too much, but um, because I'm currently writing a sequel to uh, Before and After. And I had a feeling. I had a feeling. <laughs> Glad you said it before I asked it. But yeah, keep going. So there is, um, there is, essentially, people were very nice about before and after, and said that they wanted to to find out what happens next and to, to hear more. And and I realised that I felt the same. I, I wanted to. I felt that there was a story to to conclude. And so, so yes, yeah, so I'm working on the sequel. But the. Um, so I'm, I can't go into too much detail around kind of the origin of the rats because that, that becomes a lot more pertinent in the second book. But the um, the really the thing that I, I like about the bad guys in this book is that they were inspired by. I don't know if you have uh, you're probably protected from such things in in California, but there's a newspaper in the UK called the Daily Mail, and it's probably the closest um, analogy for, for a similar clarity would be possibly um, Fox News or something like the Washington Examiner, um, you know, kind of right-leaning, uh, gutter-press type um, sort of organisation, essentially. I've come across a few stories from this publication. <laughs> usually shocking, yeah. usually surprising, usually yes. So, <laughs> yeah. It's always hot takes and just the sort of thing that would uh, rile people up. But the the thing, the rats were really inspired by um, the un, you know the, the comments under these stories, where really the the proper kind of crimes against humanity exist because people express the most heartless viewpoints in the most crude and uh, damaging way that you can possibly imagine, and. I, I just thought that's a, anger is a is a real modern um, problem, and lack of compassion, and um, that's and, and for me that you know good bad guys have something that we see in the real world. They're not just you know 
I don't know about you, but I found it really difficult to understand Thanos' motivation. It was just, it seemed like a mathematical odyssey that he just liked balance and decided that 50% was where balance came in. I didn't particularly, it didn't resonate with me. So therefore I felt mm. that he, he lacked as a villain, whereas I felt that the rats um, were something that I had seen in the real world, which was people's deep-seated anger and being expressed in horrible ways. And, and they were really, really fun to write <laughs> as well because you can just lay out on the page some things that you think are awful and shocking and, um, you know, variously in the book, uh, the rats shout about Greta Thunberg and uh, rain and, you know, anything infuriates them and drives them into an apoplexy of rage. And they, they were really, they're good, fun characters to write because they're so... Um, absurdly angry and it sort of stupefies them to the point where they're incapable of doing basic things like picking up sticks to use as weapons because they're just so intent on hitting and biting and that's the sort of the, the immediacy of their rage and I feel like that's um, at some point I think that there is more interesting things to write about them and how that reflects on, on our world you're right. I didn't bring up Carl. In fact, I made an executive decision based on timing. And I was thinking to myself, Good these man. are the characters I'm going to get through. And then we got down to Carl. And I was like, the thing I liked about Carl is there was a moment where I wanted to include him in the part where we were talking about the internal voice and the critic, because at times Carl also yeah. felt like that. He felt like Absolutely. that just maddening voice where, where you try and do anything constructive or positive. Uh, as I heard someone once say, man, I'm just surrounded by people trying to tear me down. You know, the idea yeah. is it's like, and and it seemed like uh, that was a really interesting uh, thing for Ben to face, you know, that he's trapped in this place, but he's also surrounded, which sometimes you can feel like in a pandemic when you're uh, hearing and seeing a lot of people out there unmasked, um, saying a lot of things that are infuriating and then appear to infuriate them to the degree that you're describing, which is when logical action and thought are subsumed by you know, almost a rage or a, uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, a quality akin to um, disassociating from themselves where they disconnect with the logical reasoning part and they are simply driven mm -hmm. by a raw emotion that is uh, yeah. not, not really calculating. And I, I love that you brought up Thanos because the one thing that would have made it so great and that the comics always touched upon so well was he was in love with death and he wanted to impress yeah. her. And if he could just yeah. do something that would impress her, then he could have it. And if they had brought just a concept of that, which I think is challenging because in a movie, it's hard to bring, uh, you know, <laughs> concepts like death uh, realistically to the screen. But yeah, I did feel it was a shortcoming and, and it was something that would have made a difference. You're talking about something which is important, which is the, the purpose of the wrath was to express what you're seeing in different um uh, manifestations. You can mm -hmm. see it on television from talking heads. You can see it on television from reports of protests and other uh, instances where groups and gatherings, and you can see it as you described in the one place where no matter how isolated you are, you're still exposed to if you do any online activity and you make mm -hmm. the mistake of reading the comments, you will discover uh, deep-seated anger, hatred, vitriol mm -hmm. that just, you know, it. it it is very nonsensical. 
it is, you know, completely devoid of, of reason and logic. Sorry, you were saying. And well, yeah, I mean, but I think the other thing that I like about them is that I sort of see myself in them sometimes. Now, obviously, we would go after different targets and different kind of topics, but equally, I think anyone who exists on social media in any kind of way will know that it is almost inevitable that you are driven more by this knee-jerk of rage. Um, it, you know, albeit that I, I might be reacting to people criticising Greta Thunberg rather than me criticising her personally, that sort of thing, you know. It, but you sort of feel that visceral rage. And I feel that the platforms that we are on so much are geared towards uh, rewarding that because it's a visceral reaction and any visceral reaction increases engagement. And I feel that that is sometimes, you know, we can all be prone to that, that sort of just giving in to that anger and giving in to that, that rage. Um, and it, it's really, like I said, I think I like villains who I can understand and maybe even identify with at times. Um, because, you know, it, it's a bit, it's, it's not very useful really when, uh, things are just permit, pre presented as diametrically opposite. There is good, which is always good, and there is bad, which is always bad. And that's not useful because it's not the way that we see it. You, you know, if you imagine a, um, a comparison with Democrats and Republicans in the States, for example, it, it's not the one is always right and one is always wrong. There are points where, you know, we we reach coalition between those two points and that and that is the democratic path forward but people are so polarized in their viewpoints seemingly by these mechanisms of social media that we we end up just with this everyone pulls to the left everyone pulls to the right and there, there is no sort of calmness and you feel that that is is what the world needs potentially but i think in Ben's world, his, um, you know, his inner monologue and his sort of um, personal self-hatred is also echoed and amplified by the voice outside his window, um, which also hates him <laughs> very deeply. And how he, you know, the book, broadly speaking, is about him trying to negotiate with that hatred and reach a different path not only do i see that but i i also see that part that you're describing that we all experience that part of ourselves that is susceptible to exposure to that it's it's like a virus itself the 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 condition that the wraths undertake it's something we can experience too if we let what someone says or their actions ignite that same sort of hostility or sure. um, response we can then become just as much a wrath as they and as you said it's understanding what that is both outside of us and within us and then also how do we negotiate with ourselves so that mm. the instinctual response isn't necessarily the first response that sure. the desire to respond in kind doesn't actually help that it actually helps spread the infection the illness the sickness that comes with it and that how we choose to find a way to do 
something else instead to know that that's our instinct and then to respond not with just our instinct but with a form of reason or understanding or decision making that that you know is a more executive level than that instinctual response is um, so I, I think it's really helpful to, to bring that up because I, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the wrath in that description feels like something that can infect us all and yeah. that we're all susceptible yeah. to, you know, um, how we choose not to become wrathful <laughs> or so enraged. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I will tell you after the interview about why that's so pertinent. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to get such spoilers, guys. Here's the best part. You're going to be begging me. You're literally going to beg me, hopefully not like weirdly with like a picture of you on your knees with your hand held up high or something like that. But I have a feeling you're going to say, so when does Ben come on about this? Or, you know, when do we get to hear more about Ben in the sequel? When does Andrew come on and we get to talk about when the new book's here? Because not only have we teased you up to this point, but he's going to tell me stuff after we get off the call, which... Something I have to keep in mind because Ben I, I, or uh, Andrew, I know I've stolen a lot of time talking about Ben with you today. Um, I want to make sure I'm keeping in mind the fact that you've got a busy schedule and that this has been such a great conversation up to this point. I'm happy to hit pause knowing we can follow up on some of these points when we talk about your sequel and uh, continue on. I, I just wanted to check in with you on the, on the fact that that's I know I've had you for over an hour. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I really appreciate the conversation. I, I've, I've had a great time talking to you. I will, um, I will go and uh, read my my daughter a bedtime story now, though. So yes, I, I perfectly. Now I might get a word after we're done uh, after I hit stop on the recording, and to give us the chance for that, and maybe to tease you with it later, folks. We're going to go ahead and bring this one to an end. Before I do, really quick, Andrew, is there some place you've brought up a lot of great topics that people might want to connect with you about is there a platform that you like to engage with the public on that you would be open to hearing questions about man versus fat before and after yeah, or anything absolutely. else that we brought up during our conversation i want to give you an opportunity to let people know what that is thanks yes um yeah absolutely if um i'm often lurking on twitter where you can find me at nervous crying um or you can find me on my blog which is hello uh, www.helloshan.co.uk and if you want to find the book it's available on amazon or you can use the easy to remember url of www.helpbiscuits.com that's absolutely wonderful uh you know andrew really enjoyed talking about your book i you know enjoyed talking about it almost as much as i enjoyed reading it it's pretty equal i have to say um <laughs> and it was a lot of fun to experience well thanks for being on with me and uh i'm really looking forward to talking more about some of the great things we discussed uh, nothing better than author insights character discoveries and a little bit of behind the scenes when it comes to a great book like before and after he just told you all the ways to find it he told you all the ways to reach out and make contact and should you struggle in any way, don't hesitate to let me know. I'll make sure we get it, whatever you need, to Andrew. That brings us to an end of this episode of Storytelling with Seth and Andrew. Once again, man, thanks for being an amazing guest for a great conversation, for no talking about your book with, uh, with such openness. Thank you ever so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And that brings to a close my wonderful conversation with Andrew Shanahan.
I enjoyed talking not only about the process behind his book Before and After, but also about all the great details it contains. And what I think was the most fun was not only the teaser he gave about a future story awaiting Ben, but also so much more that he was able to share with me afterwards and some knowledge that I'm looking forward to sharing with you on future episodes and hopefully future conversations with Andrew Shanahan. Thank you again for joining me for episode number 84 of Storytelling with Seth. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. I made sure to let you know all the ways you can find Andrew at the end of this episode and also on the uh, page liner notes that are available from whatever streaming platform you are enjoying this from. I'd like to encourage you, if you like what you're hearing, if you want to hear more, please hit the subscribe button, no matter what the platform is that you're listening on. I know there are many, I know there are many of you out there, and thankful to everyone who joins, everyone who shares, and for all of the very thoughtful things you have to say. If for any reason you want to leave me a message about something you heard on here, I'd love to hear it. Go ahead and find me on Twitter as one more singleton. Uh, let me know what you're thinking. If there's a story you think should be on storytelling with Seth, and we can have a great conversation about how to make sure that's on a future episode. If you have any other thoughts or questions, don't hesitate to let me know. If Twitter's not your thing, do me a favor. Go onto your favorite search engine, type in my name, Seth Singleton, and the word story. And wherever you find me, send me a message. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to talk with you more because it's really a lot of fun. I hope it always comes through in my voice, but I really enjoy every conversation I have, every new person who I get to learn their story and share it with you. I'm looking forward to the chance to share your story someday soon. Looking forward to the next time when I get to share a story with you. And when you tune back in, I'll be here.